0: Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer.
1: Last week, we started our summer-long series on the topic of the Holy Spirit, and uh, I hope we'll all come at this from a place of... Uh, bringing what we have learned about the Spirit and experienced of the Spirit, but also be willing to grow not just in information, but the desire is through this title that we're desiring to be connected to the Holy Spirit because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of the Spirit and the gifting of the Spirit that we can live the life that God has called us to live abundantly in Jesus and to fulfill the mission that God has given us as a church. And so what I want to do today is I want to I want to take us back a little bit in history in the the background of our movement and Churches of Christ. And some of you I know may have grown up in this movement. Others of you have come here and uh, you just saw Greenville Oaks on the outside, and that's all you've ever heard. And wherever you come from, I want you to know we're so glad that you're here. But there are things that shape the way that we teach and and what we teach and what we're silent on. And this morning, I want to take us back a little ways to understand and bring us up to speed to where we are today and hopefully to lean in uh, to some new directions that tie in with seeds that have been there all along in God's movement in the church through the generations. So let us pray as we open God's word together this morning and and uh, hear from, from whatever he wants to share with us this morning. God, we, we invite you into this uh, place and we've been praying all week this prayer that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. That's the command that Paul gives to us is that we would be filled and we know that is a passive filling. It's not something we can do. It's only something we can open ourselves up to. So God, we do that again today and ask that you would speak and that we would be obedient and that we would be responsive to uh, the prompting of your spirit in our lives this morning. I pray that you'd speak to each one of us in ways that uh, we need to hear God, that you encourage us as we need to be encouraged and that you would uh, challenge us in ways we need to be challenged. That we would have our ears uh, open, God, to whatever it is that you want uh, to move in our lives to do. And I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last fall, uh, you may remember, if you don't remember the sermon series, a, a uh, bookshelf that we had behind me. It was a back to the Bible series where we talked through the different genres of Scripture and how it came to us and how the Spirit works to, uh, to inspire the Word of God in a way that continues to challenge us today. And we talked about a specific passage that talks about how all Scripture is God-breathed for certain purposes. It's to lead us to Jesus and to transform us into his image. And the reality is when we read scripture, we all interpret scripture. We, we, we take certain things and we apply them to our lives. There's other things that we say, you know, really that's more of a cultural thing from the first century. And we bring that forward in different ways. But we don't interpret all in scripture the same, all scriptures the same way. I, as I look out, I'm looking around and I'm realizing that there's a command in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're not keeping today. We're, I don't see any head coverings out there this morning, ladies. And the reason for that is because we've seen that that was a cultural way of understanding the text. And it's not that, that that scripture doesn't apply to us today about authority and how we think of how we respond to scripture, but it is that there are cultural ways that made sense in the first century that we apply in new ways. We, we don't have a holy kiss that we share around all that often either. And so we all understand this about Scripture, but the question is, how do we go about doing that in faithful ways? How do we take the words of God that have been shared through the centuries, that are shared through Scripture, that are shared through our own experiences in our lives, and apply those to the world? And and this morning, I want to remind us of something that a guy named John Wesley told us about years ago. That was four different parts that have to play in how we take the word of God and apply it to our lives, apply it to our churches, try to interpret the words that God's given to us. And and John Wesley talks about the importance of scripture. John Wesley was a part of the Protestant Reformation that I'll mention more in a minute. But part of this response of we need to go back to scripture and understand. So scripture was uh, held a high place, but Wesley's quadrilateral had four pieces. The other parts were uh, tradition. That those who have gone before us, who have laid out the tradition, right, the tradition, the, the deposit of faith that's been passed on, that plays a role in our ongoing life with God. The same way that reason does that. We use our reason to come to scripture and come to understand the world in certain ways and we apply that, but also our experience plays a role. There are certain things that you've experienced in your family of origin, in your church growing up that you sometimes react against and sometimes continue in your family that you want to pass on to the next generation. So before the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, there were basically two segments of the church. There was the church in the East and there was the church in the West. And we've basically descended from that Western church. We tend to think of church from that framework of history that went that direction from the Pope to the Catholic church and on through the Protestant Reformation and Germany and Luther and onwards to America with the restoration movement, which is where churches of Christ have come from. It's a whole different movement that split in 1054 of the Eastern church, which is really important for us to understand as well. But that church, uh, the Western church that we've descended from, really had two parts that it focused on in trying to understand God's work in the world. It was scripture, and it was also tradition. And part of Luther's critique in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century is a response against the fact that tradition had taken too great of a role in our movement with God. There were some traditions that had been gathered along the way that really needed to be uh, checked and balanced. And so Luther's trying to come and he's trying to reform a church that had gotten focused too much on on tradition and is trying to say, we want to be a movement in the Protestant Reformation that's back to the Bible. His phrase for it was sola scriptura, which is Latin for, uh, by scripture alone. And, and that was the impulse of the reformation. Now we have the Bible in our hands because of the printing press, which was this world changing innovation that changed the way that it's not just the clergy who have the scriptures. Now we have it in our own hands and can read it for ourselves. And that changes a lot. And our movement, the restoration movement, which is where churches of Christ came from, uh, emerged from the Protestant reformation with some similar ideas, And I have to say that I like this impulse of Sola Scripture. I like the idea that the Bible is something that we go back to in order to determine our life together going forward. Scripture is a precious gift that God has given to us. And is a way that God shares his will for our lives. So why is all this conversation about the past important for our present conversation about the Holy Spirit? And it's because our past matters. We can be orphaned to our past, we can deny our past, or we can realize that we come from somewhere. We reacted against certain things, and we carried forward parts of the gospel that were important to maintain in the midst of our future. And our understanding of the Holy Spirit cannot be understood without an understanding of the past of where we come to our teaching on the Holy Spirit. For example... In the 20th century in churches of Christ, there was a a, a predominant view that emerged that wasn't really the founders of churches of Christ and the restoration movement, but it was known as a word only view of the Holy Spirit. And some of you may have grown up with this kind of teaching. The teaching was basically the Holy Spirit came and did these miraculous things in the first century at Pentecost and afterwards, but after the scriptures were done being written, the Holy Spirit had basically provided to us what the Spirit's role was, which was the Bible the hand to us, and then the Spirit was kind of done with the Spirit's word. And I want to talk more about that view, but there are actually two other views uh, that are out there. There's many more than that, but if I could simplify it in three, uh, there's word-only view. There's a view that uh, of being in, um, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not just in Scripture, but indwells the Christian uh, in a life of transformation that goes forward in gifting. But there's also a view that says that uh, the Spirit continues to work in charismatic and supernatural ways with gifts that are still alive today. And these are three very different views, and it's important for you to have that background as we talk through a little bit of the history of our movement and how we emerged in this word-only view. Before we talk about our church's understanding of the Spirit, we should discuss how many in churches of Christ got to this view. The Restoration Movement, or also known as the Stone-Campbell Movement, based on some of our our early leaders, Barton Stone, Alexander Campbell, his dad Thomas, started among Christians from several denominations who desired to walk away from uh, division that was being set out by different groups that began to believe different things than traditions and creeds began to develop. And we said, no, it really should go back to the early church and how the early church practiced. We ought to go back to scripture as our basis. In fact, one of their statements was, we have no creed but the Bible. Because those creeds began to be something that were divisive. People would have a creed and then somebody else would come up with a new creed to counter that creed. And you decided who you were and what group you were part of by which creed you agreed to. And our early founders, uh, Stone and Campbell and others, said, no, 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 we need to go back to Scripture. Scripture is our creed. And we also said something different from many at the frontier revival time that was going on around that time. As Christians emerged in that area of the country, this is Kentucky and Tennessee and all the way to the East Coast as the country's growing west. The second great awakening is happening. And in that time, we tend to think of the country as a very Christian place where probably everyone went to church. And the reality is, of course, we have Judeo-Christian principles that ground the founding of our country. But it was a struggle to get people to believe in Jesus and to come to saving faith on the frontier. Frontier revivalism was big, and these revivals began to pop up all over this area of the country. And now we believe in our churches and in our teaching that anyone can come to a belief in Jesus and come to saving faith by responding to the gospel, by repenting and and confessing our sins and coming to faith in Jesus, being baptized in his name. But that was not the view among the revival preachers during the Second Great Awakening, the, the majority of them. Most of these preachers were followers of teaching by a guy named John Calvin. They considered themselves Calvinists. And Calvinists believed at that time, during this time, and it informed their preaching that God predestined some to be saved and for others to be lost in the end. In other words, God is sovereign and ultimately selects who is in and and who is out. And in his sovereign approach, that's just the way it is. So uh, convicted sinners were expected to come to events and to agonize and desire for this election that God had given to them. And the desire, the hope was that when they showed up to these revivals, that they would have some kind of experience, some kind of confirmation that they were one of God's elect uh, children. You can imagine the agony of this, right? I mean, if you've ever been to one of those youth gatherings or retreats, you see your friends that are responding in emotional ways. Maybe you were one of the ones that always responded, but there's always some that sit back and think, why is, why am I not feeling the same thing they are? Maybe, maybe I'm not one of God's saved was the thought at that time. And Barton Stone, one of our founders actually had this experience for about a year of his life. He'd been taught at a school by a guy named McGready, and James McGready taught him the gospel, but it was a hellfire and brimstone approach, and he made sure people knew, look, if you've not had a life transformed, you don't need to be taking the the Lord's Supper at the end of this retreat. You need to Sure you're right with God. You need to make sure that all of your sins are repented of. And Stone grew up on this teaching and it was hard for him to respond because he always felt like he could never be good enough to receive this confirmation that others cl- so clearly seem to be receiving. All of a sudden, though, while he was at that school, he got a sermon that was preached to him by a guy named William Hodge. And William Hodge preached this incredible message about the incredible love of God for all people, that everyone can come to a saving faith and a response of faith to this good news of God's love for all the world, that you don't have to wait for some assurance of God's pardon, some experience to confirm that you're one of God's elect, but everyone can come to saving faith in Jesus. So many of these people are gathering at these revivals, hoping for this experience. And for Stone, it was a year-long process of going to revivals. And he admitted the Holy Spirit was doing miraculous things at these events. He wasn't denying the fact the Spirit was active in doing things. It's just that he wasn't having the same experience that others were. In the midst of that, this message of the love of God came, and he responded to it. In fact, Barton Stone, one of the leaders of our movement, was at uh, what's known as the Cane Ridge Revival. If you've not ever read about the Cane Ridge Revival, let me encourage you. Google that this afternoon and just read about what happens at this event. These are our people. This is the restoration movement that's at this Holy Spirit, just kind of miraculous event moment. And Stone's there and he believes God is at work. But I say all this, I explain this background to understand that our teaching on the Holy Spirit comes from a certain place. It comes in reaction to certain things. And this experience by Stone is one of those things, among with others, on the revival, on that frontier, where when you're waiting on this response to come and it doesn't come, when you're waiting to know you're one of God's elect, it is an incredible relief to have someone tell you, you don't have to wait on confirmation of the Holy Spirit. You can actually respond to the good news of Jesus on your own. And I want you to think about it. If you've been in that place, you've seen everybody else have this election, it would be easy to swing the pendulum, wouldn't it? To swing it from saying, we've got to wait on the spirit to do something to say, no, scripture has been given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. And now we can respond to the good gift that the spirit has given to us in scripture. And this is a part of the story of where we come from. And I think part of the reason we're wary of emotional responses, perhaps in worship. Or different encounters. We want to make sure our kids, when they come to decisions of faith, they don't just make those decisions out of an emotional response. We want them to know with their heads because we're an intellectual movement that wants to make sure people understand why they're making decisions. All of this impacts where we come to and how we see things. It's interesting when it comes to their teaching. Barton Stone, again, didn't have this experience, but he was very open to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He believed that these spiritual exercises were real. And Alexander Campbell was not quite as open as stone, but he believed that the spirit did indwell Christians. This view that the word only approached that it's only through the Bible, that wasn't Campbell's belief. That was what emerged in the generations that followed different from his teaching. But what I want to talk with you to close today is not about our tradition or our background. I want to talk about scripture. And how how do we read Scripture in such a way that our experience isn't the very thing that's informing our view of Scripture, but it's Scripture that's informing our hope about our experience? And what I'm about to share with you is I think the biggest learning I've had in this study on the Holy Spirit, this debate about the Spirit from word only to indwelling to the miraculous gifts, surrounds really a few verses in Scripture. But I don't believe the word only view of the Scripture emerged from Scripture of the Holy Spirit. And what makes me say that? It's that you can't get to that view based on the Bible. Remember Wesley's quadrilateral, right? Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. See, we say that we're soulless scripture Christians. But the truth is many other things affect our interpretation. I think it's important that we admit that. Because think about this for a moment with me. Our movement set out to restore the first century church. But what happens when you believe that you actually restored that first century church. You put all of that pattern together. Well, at that point you begin to assume that your experiences of the church should be the way things are. And anyone who comes to a different perspective of things or experience of things must not be looking at it as honestly as you are. And if you look at the first century church and compare it to the restoration movement of the 19th and early 20th centuries, there are similarities except for those church buildings and, Kitchens that came along the way, which is part of the division that happened through our movement. But there's one stark difference. In the midst of trying to establish this pattern, try to go back to the early church and do things as the early church did, there was a stark difference between the first century church and this restoration movement. And that was our experience of the Holy Spirit. In most of those churches, there were no tongue speaking, there's no prophecy. Healings were something that doctors did or maybe by the miraculous work of God, but certainly not by the laying on of hands like the apostles. There were no charismatic gifts that were really taught in practice. But our question was, wait, if we've restored the first century church, then there must be a reason for our different experiences of the Holy Spirit. And we found our passage as we looked to scripture to defend our lack of experience. So turn with me, if you would, to first Corinthians chapter 13. This is the passage we found. And uh, we, we often think of 1 Corinthians 13 as a passage about love. And obviously, you've been to weddings before. You've probably heard this passage read. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. But at the end of that list, I want you to listen because this is the passage that really, I think, centered our teaching in that word-only view. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. I see it says it right there, right? Prophecies and tongue speaking will cease. The question is, when will they cease? And verse 10 says it. When the completeness comes. Or other translations will say when perfection comes. The Greek word is the word teleon or telos. It's the end or the goal or the the summit. It can mean complete or perfect or mature or lacking in nothing. Well, if we've restored the first century church and we're not experiencing the manifestations of the spirit that the early church experienced, then our assumption was completeness, this teleon, must have already occurred. And so many came to believe that completeness referred to the completion of the Bible scripture the Spirit comes, complete Scripture. That must be the end of that. And now we can move on from this stuff that the Spirit once did. In other words, the Holy Spirit was needed until we had the Bible complete. And once the Holy Spirit completed what he came to complete, the Holy Spirit was no longer needed. But a good reading of First 1 Corinthians 13.10 has to keep reading. So I want to continue reading in verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We all know this to be the case, right? We see dimly right now. I tried to say this last week, that it's a mystery to try to get up and proclaim God or who the Holy Spirit is. We will not know fully until we see God face to face in heaven. At that moment, our questions will be answered. All those doubts we have will will be answered. But the question is, then. What is then referring to? And, And I believe that then, in verses 11 and 12, refers to the completeness that's mentioned in verse Uh, in verse 10 then when is then then is when completeness comes we shall see face to face completeness isn't referring to when the bible was completed completeness refers to that day when we will see god face to face the day at the very end when christ will return then we shall know fully then we shall see face to face and i can't wait for that day how about you and all those questions will be answered, when Christ will return, when we'll be caught up with all those who've gone on before us in Christ. But do you see what we did? I don't, I don't think we got our view of the Holy Spirit in that era at that time about this word-only view from the Bible. And this is the big thing I learned from studying from the series, that even though churches of Christ have said that we are Bible-only people, sola scriptura, our view of the Holy Spirit has been completely determined by our experience or our lack of experience. But just because we were not experiencing the Holy Spirit does not mean that's what we should expect in our relationship with God. We should experience the Holy Spirit. With Paul, we request, fill us with your Holy Spirit. We don't quench the Spirit as 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us not to do. But because they were experiencing the Holy Spirit in a specific way, they tried to make that lack of experience normative. For everyone, everywhere. And even though we couldn't see at the time, and it's hard for us to believe because of our focus on Scripture, we got to our view of the Holy Spirit through our experience, looking for a Scripture to support our experience. Now, another way we defended the word-only approach was by the teaching we did on John 14 through 16. This was the speech that we talked about last week that Jesus gives to his disciples to comfort them in the midst of him about to leave, And what we said was, maybe these were promises that were intended for those original apostles, but those were done away with after, that's not written to us, it was written to them. But if you read John 14 closely, you notice that's not the case. Look with me if you would at John chapter 14. John 14 verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. In verse 16, the promises, this is a forever promise. This helper, this advocate I'm giving to to you is going to be forever. And then the promise in 17 is this isn't just scripture. He's going to live within you. And then I'm not sure how we missed this one, but the other verse we missed that is clear about this is actually in our favorite chapter, which we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks. This is in acts chapter two story of the early church, the story of Pentecost. Listen to our our verse, of course, about repentance and baptism. And then I want to read on the next verse as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Church, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this wasn't just a promise to the apostles or to the first century of people or to those who needed it to write Scripture. No, the promise is for their children and for all who are far off, including us. Now, I know a lot of you have had different experiences when it comes to this different teaching. Some of us come from different church backgrounds and they're all welcome here. And I want you to know in the midst of wherever you are, I just want to challenge you to relook at the scriptures. That's what really today is about, is to look back and to see what happened in the early church, what continues to happen in the letters of Paul and so forth. What is, what's being said here when it comes to Jesus and the promise. And I want us all to be challenged. I'm being challenged through this series to look again, and I want to challenge you to look again back to the scriptures. Because we've spent sometimes, uh, and I've done this and been guilty of this as well. I think so much time to, time trying to deny the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, rather than to receive the Spirit and to open ourselves up and to be open. First Thessalonians five nineteen, Paul writes these words: "Do not quench the Holy Spirit." Church, I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of being more wary than I have been open. To what the Holy Spirit may want to do to transform, to gift, to continue to be at work in the church and in my life. We need the Holy Spirit, amen? And at times we've been afraid to talk about this. I think there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. Fear came from several different places. For some of us, we like to be in control. And the Holy Spirit leaves us in a place where we're not in control. Now, I will remind us that Genesis 1, 1, and 2 said that the Spirit's job is in the midst of the chaos to hover over the waters, to bring order out of chaos. And it also talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. It's not that wherever the Holy Spirit shows up, things are uncontrollable and we we can't. There's still an order that comes with the Holy Spirit, but it leaves us not in control of the church. Like sometimes it's easier to want to be. So, this can be daunting. It can be fearful for those of us who like to be in control. A part of this is offering the church back to God for Christ to be the head of this church and for the Spirit to run wild in ways that we may not be ready for. The other, though, I think is a fear of division. We're afraid that if we were to teach on this, if we were to talk too much about this, we have differences of opinion. And so it may lead us to a place of division. We've divided over way too much. So, why add one more thing? But the truth is, the Holy Spirit does not divide us, it is just the opposite. I want to read again as we close this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the chapter before we read earlier, verses 12 and 13, remind us of part of the reason the Spirit's been given to us. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. The Holy Spirit of God does not work to divide the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one glue that can hold the church together in the midst of our differences. I want to encourage us through this series to be open again, to to invite God over and over again in our lives through the week to say, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Do in us whatever work you need to be done. Transform us from the sin that continues to hold us captive. Continue to gift us in ways we don't know we're yet gifted so that we can equip the body for works of service. That's part of the gifting that God has given to his church. Let me close uh, this morning with a prayer. What I want to encourage you to do over the next couple of weeks is be in the scriptures. Be studying about the Holy Spirit. Look specifically at Acts chapter 2. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take a deeper look at Acts 2, and I would love for you to look at that ahead of time. It's a powerful passage. I think a, a vision of the church that was there at the start, we need to live back up to Let's close with prayer this morning as we end our time in the word. God, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. It's hard for us to understand Jesus' words that it's good for him to leave so the spirit may come. But we trust that word from Jesus. That the gift we have in the Holy Spirit is one of the most precious gifts we have ever been given. Positive faith that we hold our trust in. And so, God, our, 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 our thanks is to you. Our gratitude is to you for the Spirit. We pray and we repent of anything we've done to quench the Holy Spirit in our lives, to say no to the Spirit's prompting in our lives when it's been clear what the holy and righteous thing was to do, for the lack of boldness we've had maybe because we've not had the Spirit there to prompt us to speak words of gospel to people who needed it, to challenge people who needed it as well. And God, we invite the spirit to change and transform us, which is maybe the hardest prayer. Because we know that uh, it's through weakness that your spirit's at work and effective. And we want to be strong, God. So often that's where we, we lie in is our own strength rather than the strength of the spirit that's found in our weakness. And so God, we lay open our lives again to you to do whatever it is you need in us. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.